Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. Today we have a special guest, the new president of the American Bar Association, Hillary Bass. Hillary plans to tackle some of the biggest challenges facing the legal profession, including how to boost female partnership ranks and improve legal education. She'll join us later in the show to talk about what the ABA is going to do to make progress on these fronts. And later on, we'll end the show by talking about Meatloaf's biggest hit, released 24 years ago, that's just been targeted by a new lawsuit. As always, I'm here with my co-host, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. We've got a really jam-packed show today, guys. Yeah. So I know normally I ask you how you're doing, and we sort of see what's going on for the week. Doesn't but matter. Actually, Get right to yeah, it. Yeah, I want to jump right in. So, Bill, what are we talking about first? A thing we've heard a lot about in the wake of the terrible shooting in Las Vegas was a thing called bump stocks. And last week, a manufacturer of of these devices was hit with a lawsuit, which is one of the first cases that was brought over the Las Vegas shooting and should be an interesting look at sort of how lawsuits are brought over over guns and mass shootings. Now, I've uh, not renewed my guns and ammo subscription in a while. So I think before we talk about the legal issues, can you tell us about what uh, what bump stocks are and how that and how that all works? Yeah, it's weird. You know, it, it's been in the news a lot lately, but it's hard to get sort of a clear yeah. definition of what mm-hmm. it is. Um, so it's this device that replaces the normal sort of stock, the thing that goes against your shoulder yeah. um, on a rifle. And what it does is it allows the gun to slide back and forth. So what that does is it bangs the gun into your finger, which then simulates you pulling the trigger faster than you could possibly pull it. So it simulates automatic fire. Turns a semi-automatic into an automatic. In effect. And that's important. That's important because of the, the illegality of automatic weapons. Right. So, like, automatic weapons are, for the most part, already illegal. Right. There are some, but they're super highly regulated and they're really expensive. Mm-hmm. But you can buy, as we've seen in these mass shootings the last couple of years, you can buy a semi-automatic rifle for a few hundred bucks or a thousand bucks. Um, the key to these bump stocks is you put one of these on, they're 100 to $400 is the, number, is the range I've seen for what these things go for. And it essentially gives you a machine gun. It gives you this thing that we all decided should be pretty much illegal. So mm-hmm. these bump stocks currently legal then? Currently legal. The ATF has said that um, because they don't actually make the weapon automatic. They don't turn it into this illegal weapon. They turn it into something that simulates the ability of this weapon, which to me seems like, I don't know. But the key, the reason why we're talking about this is because a whole bunch of these things were found in the room where Stephen Paddock fired all those shots into the 91 Harvest Festival in Las Vegas two weeks ago, which, in case you've forgotten, injured hundreds of people and killed 59. It's being labeled the, you know, the deadliest mass shooting in modern American history. So we're talking about the legal side of this. So what's the actual lawsuit right now? Yeah, so it's a class action filed on behalf of, and this is important, it's filed on behalf of people who weren't actually injured in the shooting. Mm-hmm. It's filed on behalf of people who um, are seeking recovery of their costs for emotional harm, for um, emotional recovery. It was put together by the Brady Center to Prevent Gun Violence, which is probably one of the biggest um, gun control groups in the country, and a law firm called the Eaglet Prince Firm. Mm-hmm. The defendant is Slide Fire Solutions, which is a little Texas company that's been making these things and selling them since 2010. The suit says that without this this bump stock on there that, you know, the still people would have died, but that it wouldn't have been anywhere near the carnage 
that we saw. Right, because there wouldn't have been as many shots fired. Right, exactly. So Brady Center has said, you know, this is a pretty narrow case. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's not on behalf of the people who were actually injured, and it's only against this one company. But they specifically said, this is the first of many. We plan to, we, we could later expand this to other defendants that were selling these things. We could bring cases on behalf of the people who were actually hurt. So there's probably a lot more ahead. It, and we this gets talked about a lot whenever one of these things happens, which unfortunately is uh, very uh, frequent. Um, but my, my anecdotal memory is that a lot of these product liability types of cases in, in the wake of mass shootings don't often get very far. Can you tell us more about like sort of the the sort of sad litigation history yeah. around stuff like this? Yeah, as you got to, it's it's really, really hard to bring these kind of cases against gun makers or gun dealers mm-hmm. after a mass shooting because there's this statute, this 2005 statute called the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, which says that gun makers, gun stores, people who are legally selling weapons cannot be held liable for crimes committed with their firearms. So like for instance, after Sandy Hook, which is I think probably the thing that we all think of when we Mm -hmm. think of mass shootings, a case was filed against Remington, which was apparently the company behind one of the guns used, but it was tossed out under the PLCAA, this statute. Um, The case is currently pending before the Connecticut Supreme Court, you know, arguing that, that it shouldn't have been immunized, but it just shows that you know, we're, we're now five years after Sandy Hook and that case is dismissed and maybe on a sort of a long shot appeal, but... Um, tough sledding generally. Tough. Mm-hmm. So yeah. does that mean this case is doomed also? So the interesting thing here is that the, the wrinkle here that makes this interesting to talk about is that the bump stock itself is uh, questionable whether or not it's covered by this law because it's not a gun, it's not ammunition, and arguably it's not like a regular component of a gun. It's this outside device that's added on. So the language of the statute is that it immunizes makers over, quote, a component part of a firearm or ammunition. The Brady Center, in bringing this case and all the the press releases they put out when they filed it, said that bump stocks specifically don't fall under that definition. They point to this letter from the ATF saying that a bump stock is, quote, not regulated as a firearm. Mm. So we've seen these cases fail time and again after mass shootings, but this could be an interesting case to say, you know, this is outside the realm of, of this law. This could actually be a case that could go forward. So while we're talking about cases about the Las Vegas shooting in particular, Mm -hmm. there's another one that's been filed recently too, right? Yeah. Just on Tuesday, one of the actual physical victims, a woman who was injured in the shooting, sued the Mandalay Bay, which was the hotel where the shooting took place, Mm -hmm. where the uh, shooter was shooting from, its owner, MGM, claiming that, you know, that they didn't do enough to prevent this, that you didn't, you didn't you didn't have enough surveillance, your security guards weren't trained to deal with this, X, Y, and Z, different reasons for why they didn't stop it. Uh, She also sued Slidefire, which is the same company, the bump stock company. Mm -hmm. She sued the estate of the shooter and she sued the organizer of the event. So that's another case that we're going to be watching going forward. And like I said at the outset, I'm sure there will be many more as, as, as this goes forward. Many other cases dealing with the fallout of, of this thing. Yeah, this will be really interesting to see if they get some traction where things in Congress have sort of stalled out about dealing with Yeah, well, we've with, seen, you know, that we saw some movement that it seemed like the NRA and some Republicans were yeah. maybe in favor, but now there's where everyone's splitting hairs over whether or not that should be regulatory, whether it should be legislative. So if, if history is any guide, we're not going to see anything out of Congress. So it will be interesting to see sort of how the courts deal with this. Thanks for bringing that, Bill. Yeah. So, Alex, what's the one you want to talk about today? 
Well, as we speak uh, right now, there is a kind of an interesting criminal trial underway in Brooklyn Federal Court where um, two former HSBC bankers are accused of engaging in some basically shady trading practices uh, in such a way that defrauded a client of theirs in a $3.5 billion foreign currency exchange scam. Now, why are we talking about this boring <laughs> finance bro case? Well, this particular trial uh, has taken an interesting turn in the form of uh, some relatively, for a case like this, uh, explosive evidence, uh, recorded phone calls between the two defendants that prosecutors say shows like a coercive effort to uh, pull the wool over their client's eyes. So before we get to that, though, and I think we have some pretty great clips to play. We but, do. Uh, yeah. I know these Forex cases are, sort of, I mean, they confuse the hell out of me. So sort yeah. of walk us through layman's terms, what the hell's happening here. The easiest way to talk about it, let's just to take the facts of the case. Back in 2011, two HSBC traders named Mark Johnson and Stuart Scott. This is Stuart Scott, the HSBC trader, not the deceased sports center anchor. I had, uh, to, know, I had to know that was coming. Clarify. Yeah. Uh, those two guys who are now co-defendants in this case, they were part of an HSBC team that was handling a deal for an oil developer called Cairn Energy. And Cairn basically came to HSBC and they said, we have 3.5 billion US dollars on hand and we need it converted into British pounds as they were preparing to do some other deals. Now, when you have that kind of cash on hand, you can't go to a cash converters or the airport <laughs> like, you know, like we do. You have It needs to be in the form of like, a structured, you know, deal here. Mm -hmm. So they're going from U.S. dollars to British pounds. And so they came to HSBC and they said, can you do this for us? They said, sure, we do this all the time. But then shady things started to happen. Allegedly. Prosecutors claim that, you know, in the run-up to this trade, Scott and Johnson and their team were executing a number of trades that were meant to basically inflate the price of the British pound. And mm -hmm. this essentially means that they are, if they're inflating the price of the British pound, then you know, they're kind of forcing their client, Cairn, to buy it at a bloated rate. And because these guys work on fees and commissions, this, again, allegedly allowed them to squeeze another $8 million worth wow. of, like, fees out of their client. And once they got wind of that, uh, they weren't too happy. I would be a terrible criminal. I could never think this stuff <laughs> up. <laughs> it's not that well, complicated, though. I mean, yeah. it, it generally, uh, what's what's at issue here is um, a practice, these, these trades in the run-up to a big, you know, deal... Um, are what the prosecutors are terming front-running. And this is uh, one of many shady financial tactics that's come under scrutiny with this. There's, you know, this LIBOR stuff. There's been massive investigations from regulators and law enforcement agencies. And that's how this case got its nexus. Anytime they take the effort to give it a, a name that we can all <laughs> yeah, understand. Yeah, you guys yeah. talked about spoofing before. Right. It's not the same so thing, but I mean, it's in this phylum of, uh, you know, weird stuff you can do. So what's going on in this trial so far, yeah. now that we know the lay of the land? Uh, yeah, so this is where it gets good, um, if you've stuck with us for this long. Uh, so prosecutors wrapped up their arguments last week, and the centerpiece of their case were a series of phone calls, recorded phone calls between the defendants, uh, Johnson and Scott, before, during, and after this big trade was executed. And uh, we've got a couple of them for you here. Uh, this first one, if you've got some kids in the car, these are finance guys. America does not have a monopoly on foul-mouthed uh, finance <laughs> workers. So there is some rough language here, but uh, also some entertaining British accents. These guys are uh, from overseas. Uh, and in this very first clip, you will hear, uh, the gentleman you'll hear first with the deeper voice is uh, Mark Johnson. He's talking to Stuart Scott on the other line. And this is uh, when they are in contact with each other and they find out that Karen has in fact agreed to go forward with this Forex deal. Seeing the 
They're starting to bite. Uh, full amount. No, you're kidding. Yes, two, Fu- two and a quarter. Oh, fucking Christmas. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, good All right. man. Okay. Thank you. Okay, bye. <laughs> So, okay. Wow. So they're excited. <laughs> now, obviously. right there, now, now that by itself is not, you know, they could just be excited about doing a deal. Like or that, about Christmas. Even. Sure. Yeah. That, that happens all the time. Good man. Um, <laughs> now, this next one, though, is, you know, sort of as the deal is being carried out, um, they're talking to each other about these trades that they're making ahead of time. And as mm-hmm. I said to you, they're, their concern here is how high the value gets on the British Trying pound. Trying to push the pound up. Right. But what you're about to hear suggests that they don't want to push it up too high so as to arouse suspicion with the client, with Karen. So let's listen to that. So we should use that as reference, right? right? So to, I mean, obviously, we've got a bit of way to go, right? But I don't know what his average is. But as long as it's under that rate, they can't really complain, right? Yeah. If it's over 57.30, they're going to squeal. It's over what? If it's over 50, well, it was around yeah. 56, 30 when they called us, right? I mean, spent most of the morning around 56, 20, 30. Okay. So we should probably make sure we don't ramp it up through there. So if you missed it, uh, Johnson at the, at the beginning of that call says, if it gets any higher than that, they're going to squeal. Yeah. Which again, if you're a prosecutor here, you're you're starting to you know, piece this together a little bit. <laughs> and uh, finally, this is a three-part story. The uh, the turn here, this is after the deal has gone through, and uh, there, this is, I'll I'll let this one speak for itself, and then we can talk about it after. This is why I went fucking quiet, because he's put it on mute and told me. And I'm, I'm sitting in the middle of the conversation and going... And that's me talking where it wasn't the same magnitude. I mean, yeah. it, wasn't, it wasn't the same magnitude, so within 300. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, I know. Uh, I think we got away with it, but... Well, debate thinks we haven't, but... Huh? Debate thinks we haven't, but... Uh, fuck how um, he thinks we have or haven't. Haven't. He thinks he'll get a call later. <laughs> so, wow. again, if you missed it, Johnson there is saying, I think we got away with it. So, if you're prosecuting this case, you think to yourself, all I have to do is play these clips like we just did, and that's it, right? Right. And, you know... That's what they did, and I'm sure they were pretty pretty <laughs> happy with it. Um, they did that. Like I said, the prosecutors wrapped up last week. This week, the defense went, and they're still making their arguments as we speak, but one of the main witnesses that they trotted out was a former Deutsche Bank trader who basically said, oh, this isn't front-running. This is something that's called pre-hedging, which is another sort of purportedly above-board move where, like, you hedge your bet ahead of your big transaction you know, to to, to you, reduce your client's exposure to like the fluctuations in the market. But do you often say we got? I think we got away with it. <laughs> that's who. That's the that's... thing. Like th- what we have here is sort of like a difference of terminology over you know similar practices. And as we've seen many times, this is a this is a jury trial. This is about telling a story. And so you know, if it's if you're dealing with these you know complicated above the shoulders you know intricate financial instruments. Um, the story you tell matters, and so it will be very interesting to see uh, how this plays with the jury. I will be shocked if these these two trades. I mean, nothing don't. shocks me anymore, but uh, but yes, um, it seems to be laid out in pretty bare terms. Great, thanks for bringing that to us, Alex. Thanks. Today we're welcoming to the show Hillary Bass, the new president of the American Bar Association and a prolific litigator who serves as the co-president of Greenberg Traurig. 
Hillary has big plans for her one-year term heading the world's largest voluntary professional organization with initiatives on some key issues in the profession, including how to increase leadership prospects for women and to improve legal education. Welcome, Hillary. Good morning. How are you? We're so excited to talk to you because you have a lot on your plate as the new head of the ABA. Um, one thing we were really keen to get at, over the summer, Law360 released its fourth annual glass ceiling report, and that um, takes a look at how women are doing in the law. And our report found it was pretty bleak because women made up over 50% of law school students for the past several decades, but they continue to be underrepresented at all levels of a law firm particularly at the partnership level. So what do you think is happening with women in the law? Well, it's something that the American Bar Association's Commission on Women in the Profession has been looking at for a number of years. Because what we know is that although it's been about 30 years since women have been approximately 50% of entering law school classes and start in the job market close to 50-50 with male colleagues, What we know is every year thereafter, women leave the profession. And one of the things that I'm focused on this year is a research study on why senior women are leaving. So we've known for years that many women choose to leave after they decide to have children or sometime in their late 20s or early 30s. But some recent studies have indicated that women are actually leaving in very big numbers in their 40s and 50s. And that so seems what like we the know time is by the time Yeah, that seems like the time when they would be the most valuable to their firms. Exactly. At the point at which they should be reaching the heights of experience and expertise and of greatest value to their clients and to their law firms, women are leaving in enormous numbers. So, we're doing a national study this year specifically focused on why senior women are choosing to leave the law. And from what we understand, these women are not simply changing job status from one type of law practice to another. They're actually giving up on the legal profession. That's obviously something of grave concern. Hillary, so we're hoping to have some responses on that by the summer. Hillary, in, in recent years, um, we, we've talked about it on the podcast a lot. We've seen a, a rash of litigation um, filed by female attorneys against their law firms alleging gender bias. Um, firms like Chadbourne and Park, Proskauer Rose, Steptoe and Johnson, and your firm, Greenberg Traurig. Um, you know, it's, these are allegations that go beyond mere numbers. Um, is this something that, that um, is going to warrant a coordinated response from, from the ABA? Is that something that will be studied as well? Well, we're not going to get into the study of individual lawsuits or individuals' allegations about what may have happened in their particular firm. But as an across-the-profession issue, um, there is clearly continues to be some differences in the way women are compensated. Every study that's been done thus far shows those differentials. So it's certainly worth looking into to figure out why is that happening. And we expect that this study that we're doing this year on senior women is likely to shed some light on that. Are senior women leaving because they believe they're not being compensated properly? Are they leaving because they believe the glass ceiling has moved? And although they're now a partner, they're not able to make it to equity partner or practice group leader or seriously considered for managing partner. We've got to find out the reasons why, even at the point at which these people are partners in major law firms, they're still choosing 
to leave long before one would expect them in a successful career. Hillary, you've made clear that the ABA is exploring, you know, some answers to these questions that we're asking, and I'm sure you'll come forward with some very you know, full proposals for how to make it better. But in the meantime, even in an informal capacity, do you have any advice uh, or some best practices for what law firms can do to make sure that women are advancing appropriately in the career and that um, they are retaining senior female lawyers? Well, I think our commission has, over the course of years, come up with a number of suggestions Mm -hmm. as to good ways to retain women, Um, everything from mentorship program to reevaluating business origination credit and how that is done. Um, But I would say across the board, one thing we now know is that people are not intentionally discriminating against women. It's much more complex than that. Um, Most of what I read suggests that all of society continues to have implicit biases, women and men, and that those biases infiltrate decision-making about compensation, about elevation, about hiring, about retention. And we see it in study after study, the likelihood that if you take the same resume and you put a male name versus a female name, the male is more likely to be hired, and if hired, more likely to be offered a higher salary the reality that there's something called an empathy index. And if a woman comes in and says she has to leave early to take her child to the pediatrician, she'll get a three on the empathy index. If a man comes in and says he's leaving early to coach his son's soccer, he gets an eight on the empathy index because we think this is a wonderful thing. He's being a good dad. Whereas women typically, when they reflect that they have child care commitments, it's seen as something that reflects their lack of commitment to their law practice. So we know that these inherent biases exist, and it's nobody's fault. It's a societal issue. It's the way we were all raised with certain expectations of behavior. But we know that the more that we come in touch with our own implicit biases, the more likely we can overcome them. So is that part of the purpose? We strongly propose that implicit bias training be incorporated into law firms every day, decision-making processes. So is that also part of the purpose of studying this and making it an initiative of your time leading the ABA, that it's just to shed light on this issue so more people are examining that bias? Well, what we're hoping to do is come up with not only an indication of what the problems are, but very specific recommendations about what law firms can do to stem the tide of women leaving the practice. I think we're very excited to see these roll out because every year when we do this this glass ceiling study that we do at Law360, um, everyone in the office feels a little disheartened because the numbers don't seem to be ticking up. So hopefully as more and more groups get involved, we'll see some movement there. Um, that's, I, that's where we're hoping. So uh, I'd also like to pivot to another issue that you are looking into, and that's how the legal education system may be falling short. So can you just set up for the listeners that maybe aren't tracking that issue as closely about what's really going wrong with legal education right now? What problems are you seeing? Well, I I think that not a week goes by where you don't see a major article in the newspaper about issues relating to legal education, the amount of law school debt, the diminishing number of jobs available, the fact that a lot of legal employers don't think law students are coming out of law school ready to solve client problems, and of course, first and foremost is the lower bar passage rate. 
So one of my uh, initiatives this year is the creation of a Commission on the Future of Legal Education. And the focus is really on three things. Number one, what's happening with bar passage rate? Um, right now, we've got multiple different states doing individual studies of this issue. And one of the things that the American Bar Association is best at is bringing a lot of different stakeholders under the same tent to focus on trying to solve a problem. So what we're hoping is that we can come up with some national study on what actually is happening with the bar passage rate, whether there are changes in the test, whether it's the fact that, for example, when I first took the bar some years ago, there were 10 topics on my bar exam. I can Currently, say, I can attest the- that uh, when I took it, and it's been several years for me too, but I took it in Virginia and there were 26 subjects. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a big that's change. That's how many topics are now on the Florida bar. Right. Yeah. And maybe it's a time to to look at that issue and say, should somebody who wants to be a family lawyer be expected to be an expert on the UCC? Right. I mean, it's so, um, it's so broad reasonable? in some areas, for sure. And it doesn't reflect the fact that most people come out of law school and end up specializing in a particular area of law. Right. Um, maybe we should look to the medical school model, where after a year or year and a half of basic law school classes, we give a basic law school exam on what information every lawyer would need to know. If you don't pass that exam, you don't incur another $100,000 worth of debt. <laughs> That but seems so do, much more reasonable maybe, since I still have student loans from law school. <laughs> of course, and so many people do. And maybe the secondary tests should be more specialized. So to the extent that you know you want to be a criminal defense lawyer, you take a specialty exam, just like you would if you wanted to be a pediatrician. You wouldn't be expected to know about neurosurgery. So these kind of issues really need to be examined. And again, I'm not the expert, so I don't know what the answers are. But we put together a commission of 10 really top-notch academics, futurists, law school deans, and they're going to look at these issues and come up with some recommendations. Hillary, these sound like such interesting initiatives that are tackling some of the biggest problems going on in the profession. So we will be watching at Law360 to see what those recommendations are. And we'd love to talk to you again when um, you guys have discovered some more information that could be useful to the profession. Thanks a lot for being with us today. Well, I would look forward to that. My pleasure. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Hillary. Bye-bye. So we like to end our show with something offbeat, and we're talking today about a song I wish we weren't talking about. Bill, what do you have? We're talking about something (laughs) off-meat. Good Lord. Yeah. This is also turning into song-stealing corner. This is uh, two two weeks in a row. (laughs) Um, So we're talking about meatloaf. Uh, Yeah. Not not the hearty dish, the singer. Um, (laughs) Case there was confusion. So uh, you've you've probably heard heard of the song, uh, I'd Do Anything for Love. I mean, oh, oh, I've heard of it. It's his biggest hit. Although Paradise by the Dashboard Light also rocks. Uh, So Meatloaf, more than 24 years after the song was released, Meatloaf was sued this week by a guy who created a sort of obscure 1990 track called Anything For You, who claimed that Meatloaf had stolen the song from him. The guy, guy named John Dunmore Sinclair, says Loaf, quote, essentially copied the soul of the original work. (laughs) 
I love um, you. You're such a you're such a diligent newsman. You've heard him loaf on the second ref. Oh hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Okay, so, so we have so on? we have some clips here just for the listener to listen <laughs> to it. And uh, so here is the meatloaf version, in case you've forgotten what it sounds like. I was hoping we let it breathe a little more. And I now we gotta get out of here. I wish that but. I could forget that song. And yeah, now we have is, to talk about another uh, maybe. We're burying the lead song. of this segment. The, the lead is that Amber doesn't like that song. But, yeah. Well, we'll, 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 we'll circle back to that. All right. So here's the uh, here's the purportedly infringed song. <laughs> I'll do Okay, so I think okay, I think yes. a key piece wait, of context wait, wait. here. As if the meatloaf song couldn't be bad enough. Then we listen to that one. Yeah. Wow. Key piece of little in studio stuff. Our producer Kelly, big music guy, yeah. hates that song. Just <laughs> grimacing the whole time it was was playing. Well, thank God it got the Kelly seal of disapproval. <laughs> yeah. So a couple interesting things with this one. Um, I think a thing that would catch anyone's eye is that this was filed 24 years yeah, after the song. Yeah, let's like just talk basic about that. legal thing. That's like a weird thing to bring a lawsuit mm-hmm. 24 years after you yeah. should have known about what you're suing over. But the Supreme Court ruled three years ago um, in a case dealing with Raging Bull that you can essentially do this with copyright suits, that you can bring them as long as you want later because there's this three-year rolling statute of limitations that kicks off with every new infringement. Oh, so any time it may have been played at any time. You can just sue three years backwards. So that's sort of allowed for a lot of these cases. Like we saw uh, a couple months ago uh, that U2 was sued off of a song from We're just uh, naming all the bands I don't like. (laughs) Which was released in 1991. So this is not novel, but it is part of a bigger sort of problem in in music law. Now, Bill, I went to a wedding a year ago uh-huh. and the guy actually walked back down the aisle to I'll do anything for love. I wonder if that was when the clock started for his suit. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Probably, right? This, I, think it's, I think it's named in there. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That was the latest <laughs> infringement. That was the last time it was played. Yeah, this isn't on, it on the radio um, anymore. Yeah. So there's also a weird big law connection here that the, the way that this guy claims that Meatloaf found his song was that they were both represented by this dude who worked at Prior Cashman at the time. You have to prove with a copyright suit, you have to prove that the one person had access to the song. Yeah. So his way of doing that here is that like this guy was, you know, that he had told this plaintiff that he would shop his song around, that Meatloaf was looking for songs. All right. So it's just this weird connection of like, we were rep by the same person. You, (laughs) You must have stolen my song. Interesting. Yeah. And now Amber's happy because the segment's over, oh, which means... thank God. But that means play us out, Loaf. Yeah. I have been tortured enough. Yeah. But thanks for being with me anyway, guys. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. And thanks, Bill. See you next week, guys. We have a lot of people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. We'd also like to thank our special guests, Hillary Bass, 
and contributing reporters this week, Sam Reisman, Stuart Bishop, Bonnie Esslinger, Dorothy Atkins, and William Gorda. Music for the show this week comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men, and a little bit of meatloaf. <laughs> if you want to know more about any of the legal developments we've talked about today, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. And if you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks, and see you again next week.